You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I feel like who art ed. Who art is Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, weekly art history for all ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I am really excited. I have a fellow art teacher that I have been seeing on social media all over the place, Paula Lees. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. I am so glad we could finally make it work. Um, in your busy schedule, I mean, founding the anti-racist art teachers, you were just talking about you've got a book coming out in the future. Yeah. So uh, there's two books coming out. One book that I co-authored with other members of anti-racist art teachers called Anti-Racist Art Activities for Kids. And that's available, will be available in late May, early June of this year. And my other book, be a Creative Changemaker is a kids art activity book, and it's inspired by the amazing life stories of diverse artists from around the world. So right now that has a tentative release date of uh, late fall, early winter of 2023. Excellent. I am I am so excited to, to see those. I know I will be picking up copies of both, and um, I'm really happy that I get to have you on the show here because, like I said, we've been in contact. I first reached out to you, I think, like probably six months ago. I've been wanting to have you on the show because one of my goals is to make sure that I am covering all sorts of different artists. And one of the things I love about this show is as I talk to people, I find out about so many different artists that maybe were a blind spot to me. Like, Today, we're going to be talking about a Baroque sculptor and sculpture, not my medium. And the Baroque was not an area that I focused a lot on. But I found so many times when I take the time to start looking and and studying, I find so much more to appreciate. So I'm really excited. Today, we're talking about Luisa Ignacia Roldan. And as I said, she was a Baroque sculptor born in Seville, Spain in 1652. And first of all, just like a female sculptor at that time, I mean, that was kind of a rarity in the Baroque era. I tend to think of it as very much a male-dominated area. But she learned from her father, actually, I guess art was kind of a family business. Am I right? Like she apprenticed in the workshop and all of that. 
Yeah. So she was, uh, her family was, she was born in Sevilla, Spain, and her father, Pedro Rodan, was a well-known Baroque sculptor. So, uh, and actually a lot of women at the time were prohibited from taking part in making art. Um, and the only ways that they could apprentice and actually learn to create art were through family members. So mm -hmm. Luisa is one example where she was training and learning and apprenticing under her father and other artists of the time, like, for example, similar Artemisia Gesheleshi. She also became a painter because she was born into kind of a family where that was where she was allowed. Because a lot of times back then, this is why there's not a lot of women artists when you look back in history, because they were not given the same opportunities as men were at that time. So it was much more rare to have that. So she was fortunate in that she kind of was born into that family and she was able to learn from her father the different skills and techniques. Yeah, and just a little connection I had off of that, and I know it's a different time period and, and a, a different culture, but I was just doing an episode on um, Berthe Morisot, the the impressionist painter and my guest there shared with me a detail that like just really drove home of how different the um lives were for people based on their gender she said that um berthe was not allowed to go out in public without a male chaperone so she wasn't able to do like the m plein air painting that so many of the impressionists were known for and it's it's one of those things that for me it's like it's hard to wrap my head around but like those details of just how the day-to-day -day life was so differently structured for people um kind of hits hits home for me anyways and she was fortunate that her talents she was able to develop because she did come from that artistic family um like we said she she studied in the workshop and on on that in in her father's workshop and on that topic you shared in the notes here a detail about her personal life also was intermingled there like she married a fellow sculptor am i right yeah so she actually fell in love with another sculptor at the workshop and when she announced that she was in this relationship her father got really upset and actually refused to attend their wedding and essentially kind of disowned her and because of that opposition she had to leave her father's workshop so she ended up moving in with her husband's family and uh she ended up becoming her own independent artist so in a way it was kind of difficult at first because she was kind of pushed out and not able to kind of have those same connections but at the same time she was given the opportunity to become the lead sculptor and kind of create her own name and fame for herself yeah Interesting. So it's it's kind of ironic. Like she started off getting the opportunity by joining the family's workshop, but then she had to be kicked out of the workshop in order to really get the uh, opportunity to develop her own voice and her own sort of independent artistic career. It actually wasn't until she was 32 that she actually got her first independent commission for art. So it actually took many years, right? It wasn't like an immediate thing because again, women did not 
uh, had the same amount of respect and weren't seen as equals. So it took a a considerable long time for her to get her first large independent commission. Uh, And the way that it worked is that she would often create the sculptures and then uh, her husband would paint, paint the sculptures as well. So it was kind of like a team family effort as well. Interesting. Now, thinking of those commissions that she would eventually get, um, I'm thinking to that that period, I feel like so much of, of stuff was about the church, right? Like in in that time period, like the biggest patron for the arts seemed to me that it was always like stuff for the churches. And my understanding of her and her work was that it largely was religious imagery and statues and things to go um, around the church, in the courtyard, all of that. Is is that what she was doing with those commissions, like at 32? Am I right in that? Yeah, so she is most well known for those these large-scale, life-size wooden sculptures of different religious figures. So uh, the one that... She kind of got her first start in was the Cathedral Vieja, which is in Cadiz, Spain. Uh, So she was also later commissioned by the town council to complete uh, statues of the different patron saints Mm -hmm. there as well. And in addition to that, she also did make smaller terracotta figurines that were much more affordable. So she was able to sell these smaller uh, kind of terracotta figures that people would then have within their own homes and gardens and things as a way to kind of help make ends meet. And that's interesting because when I think of the Baroque, I tend to think of everything on that massive monumental scale. I think of the Baroque as like the, the, biggest figureheads, whether in the church or the royalty or the aristocracy, trying to have these grand, awe-inspiring works. And so it's interesting to hear that she was also making smaller scale things that were just for ordinary people to be able to have in their homes and stuff like that. I think that kind of gets lost in in my quick glance at history. Yeah. And um, eventually after some time. She actually in 1692, so she applied for the position of being the court sculptor for King Charles. Uh, and she was actually initially offered this position without any pay. And so she actually initially declined that position because it it wasn't paid. Uh, and it wasn't until King Charles actually promised a small salary and a residency in a home that she was able to, to take on to take on that role, which she had later in her life. Uh, So that was just also an interesting detail. And as the court sculptor for the king, she actually apparently had to uh, continuously write to the king to ask for the money because it wasn't just automatically being paid. Uh, So it was something where she had to kind of use her, her voice and really advocate for herself and her family and her work. That's interesting. So like even back then, people were going to artists saying, hey, will you make me stuff for the exposure and the prestige and work for free? Um, Because I know that among all the artists, I know that is the most common frustration is people are saying like, hey, will you build me a website, design me a logo, paint me a picture and, you know, get the exposure, you know? Um, But that 
that is really interesting. And so now I think it seems like a good time to shift over to talking about her work more specifically. So after the break, we're going to talk about one of her famous pieces. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'm back here with my guest, Paula Lees. Once again, we're talking about Luisa Ignacia Roldan, uh, the famous Spanish Baroque era sculptor. And you're going to have to help me out with this because I cannot pronounce a name. And this one has like four parts to it. We're looking at a sculpture of Saint... Uh, St. Ginés de la Jara, which was created about 1692, and it's currently on view at the Getty Center, and they actually have a really great video of uh, that I recommend watching, where they actually kind of take these 3D images of this large-scale wooden sculpture to kind of see how it was made and all of the pieces underneath, so that's just a really great if, if you have time, I'm not sure if you can put the link in, but the Getty Museum has a really great video that really does a deep dive into the into the creation of the sculpture. I will link that video in the show notes for this episode. And if you're listening on um, on a platform like Spotify that supports episode-specific cover art, you'll see an image of the work we're discussing right there um, in your podcast player. But looking at this statue, what are you noticing? What's jumping out at you? I think to me, it's just the the sense of hyper-realism. So a lot of these polychrome sculptures, they were, the intent was to appear as lifelike as possible. So they were sculpted, hand-carved out of wood uh, and were painted. So the, and also often had glass eyes, wigs and real uh, clothing on top. So the goal was to kind of mimic reality. I almost think they kind of reminiscent of modern day wax sculptures. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just the attention to detail, I think is astounding, especially with the the way that the sculpture is painted, the skin. If you really look, it's not just a solid color. You can see all of the different variations in the texture and the joints and the it even looks like the blood veins that you can see in the feet and in the hands. There's just a really meticulous attention to detail, which I also think is something that's always drawn me to Baroque art in general. Is just that high level of ornamentation and 
and meticulous detail that is just something really I'm drawn to. Yeah, it. I mean, it's one of those things that I always find just so impressive. It's so satisfying to see somebody excelling at their at their craft, whatever it might be, whether it's a painting or a sculpture or a pro athlete, just seeing people perform at their peak is always just really enjoyable to me just to just to watch that. And looking at this piece, I mean, it is astounding the the level of detail, like you said, in the flesh tones that are that are rendered. But I also really like the pose of it. The pose feels like, you know, it's it's the statue equivalent of a snapshot, right? Like there's this active quality to the way that the figure is posed with the one arm up and the fingers splayed and and the the one foot out in front just a little bit. I mean Obviously, that is dating back in some ways to, you know, even the ancients with the contraposto and the classical um, renderings. But I think it's it's really interesting how she's paying attention to every little detail in there, even looking at, at like the hair and the beard. That's that's where to me it it just becomes something else. You know, it's like next level when you are able to capture out of wood, those kinds of details and those kinds of features and the glass eyes. That's a detail that always creeps me out a little bit. If I'm being a hundred percent honest, like that's, that's where to me, this gets into horror movie territory, but still, I mean, hats off on, on the quality of the construction. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with the, that pose. So when I was reading about this piece, it was, I think the intention was to kind of make it look as if he was in the act of preaching. So it was a, a saint. So this kind of open mouth, his mouth is slightly open, his kind of gesturing with his hand. So it's almost as if he's in the middle of uh, giving a, giving some sort of uh, speech as well. Yeah, it does. It does have that that vibe. And did you say that in this work, like the clothing, is that actual clothing? Is that actual fabric draped over the sculpture or was that sculpted to appear like clothing? So actually, that is not actual fabric, although it really looks very similar. It's draped very similarly. It's all carved from wood. And there is the uh technique, the pattern on there. It's actually called a estofado technique where they scratch away and relieve, uh, reveal the gold leaf underneath. So it's almost like a kind of scraffito technique as well. And that is another thing that just the, the level of detail, I, I don't know about you, but I always look at these pieces and I think like what that process would be, like, how would I make that? And in this one, it's like I I see it, I see the forms, I see the shapes that are on the fabric, and and I see all of those details, and I just don't even know where I would begin to construct something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. and I think it just kind of goes back to that level of detail and attention that she was putting into everything, so all of the folds and the clothes and the way the intricate pattern on this robe that he's wearing, I think is absolutely phenomenal as well. So it's just 
So really, if you look up close, the amount of detail in it is really, really amazing. Yeah, it. I mean, and it's overwhelming, which to me is one of those things that that's what I feel like the Baroque goal was all about is making art that is just awe-inspiring that you look at and your jaw drops. Even if you're somebody who knows about how pieces are constructed, perhaps it becomes even more impressive when you know the work that goes into that construction. But it is truly awesome. Uh, now, this is a beautiful work. It is so elegantly constructed, but my podcasts, I like to be a little less elegant. I like to wrap things up in the most awkward way possible. And I'm wrapping it up I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the loot. British for the bastard. Yeah, there's a the loot joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. I think for me, it's maybe the first two, because I do think that this is a piece that really demonstrates, like you said, what Baroque art was kind of all about. And the fact that it was created by one, the, this is, she's the first documented uh, woman sculpture of Spain, I think is really, really important and shows that historical significance. So I think that that definitely needs to be done. And I do think that it should be kind of looked at and kind of uh, broken down to see how it was made, just so that one can really understand and appreciate all of the work and commitment that went into actually creating this, this piece. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I, I agree. Um, I think this is definitely one to, one to study and one to learn from. Um, it's if I'm being a hundred percent honest, like this style is not my favorite. I'm a, I'm a modernist at heart, but when I see these things done so well, it is just, it does make me pause. It does make me take a moment. And while Baroque in general is not my cup of tea, I, I gotta say, I'm liking this one. And the more I look, the more I find that I enjoy and appreciate, which I feel like is probably true of most things. The more we learn, the more we study, the more we grow, the more we appreciate. Yeah, definitely. And I also think that this is a piece that the impact of seeing it in person also would be very different than just seeing it on on a screen, just because it is this large scale sculpture that it's going to have a very different kind of impact in when you're viewing it and seeing it in real life versus just on a two dimensional surface. So then that way you can in person, get up close and actually see all of the teeny tiny intricacies and really appreciate all of it. Absolutely. But uh, for those who aren't fortunate enough to go and see it in person, I will link the video, as you said, that gives a little bit more detail, shows us a little bit more about how it's constructed. And I do also want to say, as much as I appreciate this work, I really appreciate you taking the time to teach me about this work. So thank you once again, Paula Lees, fellow art teacher, founder of the Anti-Racist Art Teachers, and you've got two books coming out in the future. Thank you so much for finding time to work me into your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, no, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, and I also have my own uh, social media where I share lesson plans and ideas. So if any are educators out there listening and they have any questions or want to know more, feel free to send me a, a message on Instagram and I'll respond. And I will, of course, put your social media links on um, on the show notes as well, along with the website. And you've got a newsletter. You've, you're just doing all of the things at a level I wish I could achieve. So thank you for, for taking the time to share and help, help me and being willing to help others grow as well. Thank you. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.